Our scripture lesson this morning is from Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, chapter 13. I'll start reading at verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Love is never irritable or resentful. It does not insist on its own way. Love rejoices in the right, never in wrongdoing. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it too will come to an end. For now we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I thought as a child, I reasoned as a child. But when I became an adult, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now we know only in part, then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. And now three things abide, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. It's almost never a good idea to edit one of the most beloved poems in the history of Western literature, but let me take a crack at paraphrasing St. Paul. As for our little lives, he says to the church at Corinth, they will soon be gone. As for splendid Rome herself, she will soon pass away. The Christian church will disappear someday. As for the ancient towering alpine peaks, they will one day be worn flat. Only three things abide, faith, hope, and love. They are the three eternal verities according to St. Paul. Faith, hope, and love, Martin Luther King calls them a magnificent trilogy of durability. And Paul doesn't pause to explain why he thinks these are the three things that last, But the great American 20th century theologian Reinhold Niebuhr takes a nice crack at it. Life is a mystery, says that renowned theologian Madonna. Life is a mystery. It's cryptic. It's complicated. It has twists and turns. There are potholes and fallen trees laying in our path. Therefore, we're saved by faith without sufficient evidence. We must trust that the universe is being led home by a capable benevolence. Life is a mystery. Life is also long, longer than the span of our breathing existence. Therefore, we are saved by hope, hope that someone will carry on for us once we are gone. Life is a mystery. Life is long and life is hard, harder than we can bear on our own. We get lonely. Therefore, we are saved by love. Magnificent trilogy of durability. And hope is one-third of that trilogy. Hope is what sustains us when feebler, less permanent things disappoint. Flesh is frail and the human heart duplicitous, and even earth's dense fundament of rock will one day pass away. But hope is in God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hope, therefore, is what we live by when the biopsy comes back positive. Hope is what sustains us when the partner we thought we would grow old with walks out on us without warning or apology. Hope is what lasts when you lose your job at the age of 52 
They can deny us our opportunity, but not our will to succeed. They can tell us we have six months to live, but we can prove them wrong and live large until there is no breath left to live with. Is it fitting in Chicagoland to use the Green Bay Packers as a parable of hope? You've probably heard this before, that the waiting list for season tickets at Lambeau Field has 40,000 names on it. The Packers estimate that six or seven season tickets come up for sale every year. At this rate, it will take you 6,000 years to get your season tickets. Now, Lambeau Field is an enduring institution, but I think it's safe to say that it won't be here in the year 8,000. And I think it's even safer to say that you won't be here. Still, hope springs eternal in the cheesehead's heart. Here's another example. I've heard of this 93-year-old woman who moved into one of these retirement facilities with a full spectrum of care. She'd live there, she would live there for the rest of her life. It's like the V or Presbyterian Homes, right? And it was very nice. She was very comfortable there, but also, of course, very expensive. And she would obsess about whether her resources were sufficient to carry her through to the end of her days. And she would obsess about this so much that one day her son-in-law took a whole afternoon to calculate her financial resources to make sure that he, she had sufficient funds to live until her last day. And when he was finished, he walked over to her and he said, I've good news, Mom. You have enough financial resources so that you can stay here for another 16 years. She was crestfallen. Well, what will I do then, she said. <laughs> 93 plus 16 equals 109. I love her attitude. Ernie Banks died on January 23, 2015, which means that this coming Tuesday is the third anniversary of his death. He had the most wonderful obituary when he died. Glenn Beckert played second base when Ernie was playing shortstop for the Cubs, and they asked Glenn what Ernie was like, and Glenn said, Ernie was the eternal optimist. You'd spend six weeks in the spring at spring training in Arizona, where every day it was sunny and 80 degrees, and then for opening day, you'd fly back to Chicago. And at Wrigley, we would often open against the Cardinals, and there, standing on the mound, was their invincible ace, Bob Gibson, and it would be about 32 degrees at Wrigley on opening day. And in the sixth inning, it would start snowing. And Ernie would wander over to second base and throw his arm around my shoulder and say, isn't this a great day? We'll keep nice and cool. We won't get overheated. <laughs> in 2003, President Obama awarded Ernie the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is, of course, the land's highest civilian honor. And Ernie remembers standing there with the president. He said, I handed the president a bat that belonged to Jackie Robinson. He wouldn't give it back. <laughs> now, the medal ceremony was three years before the Cubs earned their first world championship in 108 years. Now, the president said he admired Ernie's slugging ability very much, 512 home runs, 19 years, all of them with the Cubs, 2,528 hits, 2,583 games, 512 home runs. But then the president said that what he admired most was Ernie's undying hope that one day the Cubs would earn a championship. And that's serious hope, said the president, 
That is something that even a White Sox fan like myself can respect. Did you see or read Allie Raceman's testimony at that courtyard, courtroom in Lansing at the trial of Lawrence Nasser, the so-called doctor for the women American gymnasts? Allie is 23 years old. She has won six Olympic medals in gymnastics, three of them gold in London in 2012, in Rio in 2016. The other day in that Lansing courtroom, she looked her abuser in the eye and she said, I am here to tell you to your face, Larry, that you will not take this sport away from me. I love gymnastics and that love is stronger than the evil that resides in you and in those who enabled you to hurt so many of us. Just stunning testimony. 23 years old. And so hope is hard work. It's an attitude, right? It's a determination that we will not be defeated by pervy people or sinister diseases or callous authorities. It's a clench of the jaw, a grit of the teeth, a squaring of the shoulders, that posture that says, go ahead, fate, bring me your worst. You have no idea whom you're dealing with. Hope is an attitude, but it's also a perspective. The other day in the Times, Nicholas Kristof published a column with a very unchristophian title. 20, why 2017 was the best year in human history. And I started, I was skeptical. I started to think 2017 in Las Vegas, the worst mass shooting in American history. In Puerto Rico, Hurricane Maria. In Florida, Hurricane Irma. In Texas, Hurricane Harvey. Two Harveys, actually. One in Texas, another in Hollywood. This whole tawdry scandal of this unbridled, unheeding male sexuality. In Charlottesville, white supremacists come out of the closet we thought they were hiding in to shout publicly what until now they only dared whisper. 2017, the best year in history. But Mr. Kristoff and his ilk want us to take a, a larger, broader, longer view. Bill Gates, for instance, points out that since 1990, childhood mortality around the world has fallen by more than half. 12 million in 1990, 5 million in 2017. The ultimate goal is 12 years away, 2.5 million in 2030. Mr. Gates points out that in Africa, until a short time ago, many parents refused to name their babies until the babies reached four months of age because you can't waste good names and childhood mortality was so common. That's not so true anymore. In his recent book, Homo Deus, Yuval Noah Harari points out that for the first time in human history, more people are dying of obesity than of starvation. More people die by their own hand than by soldiers, terrorists, and criminals combined. The average American is a thousand times more likely to die of binging at, at McDonald's than of bombing by Al-Qaeda. A while back, I officiated at the wedding of my friend Wendy to the love of her life, Thelma. Someone put it like this, nothing is more responsible for the good old days than a bad memory. 
And so hopeful people are like those superheroes, the guardians of the galaxy, right? Hopeful people are the guardians of tomorrow. Hopeful people live as if their nation, their civilization, their planet, this universe will survive them, will be here a long time after they're gone. Now, they might be wrong about that, yes? A planet-killing asteroid or Kim Jong-un or an influenza epidemic might wipe most of us out tomorrow. But hopeful people don't live as if that's what will happen. They live toward goals and futures that are way off in the distance. And so hopeful people plant trees under whose shade they will never rest and start college funds for students whose graduations they will not survive long enough to attend. And they donate science centers to universities, science centers that they will never step foot in after the dedication ceremony. And they not only conserve fossil fuels, they plan for a future in which fossil fuels will become unnecessary because of cleaner energies. And they live in such a way that the air and water they leave for their children will be cleaner than it was for their parents. They don't live on the earth as if it were a hotel room that somebody else is going to clean up after them. Someone put it like this, we must live by the love of what we ourselves will never see. Yes, we must live by the love of what we ourselves will never see. I love the story of the Beetley Oaks of New College, Oxford. Have you heard about the Beetley Oaks of New College? A New College, Oxford is called New College because it wasn't founded until 1379. It is not even 700 years old yet. And New College, Oxford has this magnificent dining hall with a tall ceiling. It looks a lot like the Great Hall at Hogwarts Castle if you've seen the Harry Potter films. University of Chicago has a hall like this. And the roof of this dining hall is way up there and held up by these ancient, massive oak beams. The beams are two feet square at their thickest and 45 feet long. And a hundred years ago, once one of the university's entomologists was poking around on the roof with his penknife, and he stuck his knife into those oak beams and discovered that the beams were riddled with beetles. And so he told the college board, and they had a lot of consternation about this. Because at the beginning of the 20th century, where, how do you replace oak beams this magnificent? But a junior fellow overheard the dilemma and suggested that they visit the college forester. These oak, Oxford and Cambridge colleges have parcels of land all over the UK that have been bequested to them, and they have foresters. Maybe there was a grove of oaks somewhere on college lands that could replace the beetly oaks. Now, the forester hadn't been on the main campus for years, but they finally tracked him down in the forests of the kingdom that belonged to New College, and they told him their dilemma, and he just tipped his hat and said, Well, sirs, we was wondering when you'd be asking. College foresters, you see, know that all oak beams go beetly eventually. And so when New College was founded in 1379, they planted a grove of oaks for the college hall. And this plan had been passed down from one forester to the next for 500 years. You don't cut them oaks. 
them's for the great hall. Now, that story's probably apocryphal, at least with the details that I just related it to you. But there's enough truth to express the point. Somewhere among the oak groves of New College, Oxford, there were trees that had been protected and nurtured down the generations and down the centuries for tomorrow. We live by the love of what we ourselves will never see because nothing that is worth doing can be accomplished in our lifetimes. Therefore, we are saved by hope. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.